So, uh, welcome to the Fencing Podcast, uh, episode three. Um, I'm Sean. And I'm Gavin. Uh, and once again, we've got an absolutely bumper edition for you, so much so that once again, we're going to have to split it into two parts. Um, so, in part one, we're going to have a look at things that are arising, from, uh, matches arising from uh, episode two, as a, a few things pointed out, or things that changed between the time mm-hmm. that we, we recorded and broadcast. And we've got a big interview. It's uh, a very big interview. Uh, but really fascinating and uh, one that I thoroughly enjoyed doing. But the first thing we've got to get to is those of you that have visited our website, uh, followed us on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, will have noticed we have a lovely, lovely new logo. It's very nice. It's a thing of beauty. It's a thing of beauty. Um, So a a big, big thank you to Michelle Golding at uh, fencingstuff.org.uk for producing our lovely design. Thanks, Michelle. If you want to visit our website, as I say, fencingstuff.org.uk, uh, loads more cool stuff, t-shirts, sweatshirts, um, rucksacks, all sorts of stuff with some glorious design work on They there. are very, very good t-shirts, to be fair. Yeah, so I would highly recommend going there. Um, so, things that have been happening since last time that we, last time that we spoke... First thing was our, our big interview last time about Sabre with John Southfield. John had obviously spent a great deal of time and effort and considerable bit of an analysis about what was going to happen with the Sabre rule changes uh, and we recorded all that and then between the time of recording the interview and actually broadcasting the podcast the FIE changed their mind yet again and they've gone from having Sabre starting with their back foot on the usual on guard line uh, to having a fixed three metre separation between the on guard lines yeah that's like they can't be their mind up yeah I mean there is a a strong hint I get of the FIE kind of making it up as they go along but I thought they uh, I thought they'd actually test there was a rumour that they'd actually been doing testing on this for quite a while well, it's uh, it seems to be a fairly unsubstantiated rumor oh, based right, on the okay. fact that you know they wait until they've done a uh, a couple of junior World Cups and then oh, we'll, we'll change it again. Do we, do we do we know what the rationale is for it? Has anybody actually said what the rationale is? Uh, the understanding, I mean, as as John said in his interview last time round, they seem keen to make the uh, make Sabre less less physical and more technical, and the idea with bringing the fences closer together to start with was it would it would take out this kind of enormous, incredibly powerful step lunge that's not necessarily very exciting to watch and perhaps a bit harshly might be described as being, you know, a, a triumph of, of power over technique. Yeah. So uh, that seems to be the thinking behind it. Whether that works out or not, well, that does remain to be seen. Later on in the in the podcast, we will be looking at the first senior mm. Sabre World Cup of the season. And I watched some of that. Well, I'll give you my opinions later. But, okay. But yeah. So, yeah, what else has been happening? Other big news in politics. Uh, not something that we cover regularly. Uh, no. Something I'd claim no expertise in whatsoever. Uh, but an interesting appointment to uh, in the Russian government was Pavel Kolbkov, um, multiple times world champion, men's epius. Genuinely one of my heroes. Yep. <laughs> uh, an absolute superstar. Has become the Russian minister for sport. Yeah, well, it was a bit of a shocker, I've got to be honest with you. Where did that come from? Um, well, I mean, I mean, he was involved in politics, but I didn't realise that he was likely to get um, pretty much the, the, the top job in sport in Russia. Big job, obviously. Mm-hmm. Quite a lot for him to, to contend with. And I think it'll be really interesting to see, you know, a name that we're familiar with uh, stepping into a very high profile role. It's, it's interesting for me as well because I was watching a documentary called The Red Army about the Soviet ice hockey team mm-hmm. and the captain of this is Soviet ice hockey team from the 70s and 80s 
and the captain of that team, whose name currently escapes me, was actually the Minister of Sport until very, very recently. And I think Pavel is his replacement. Although oh, um, Vitaly Mutko. Yes, to, you'll need to double-check that, but I think that he well, is... Well, that's the guy that um, Kolkov replaced anyway. Well, what we need is to double-check it's that guy. OK. I have to double-check that. But he was certainly the Minister of Sport when that documentary was made, and that was only a couple of years ago. So. Oh, it definitely is there. Right, OK. Yeah. Closer to home politics, um, FIE Congress uh, happens at the end of this month. Mm-hmm. Um, not something that would be hugely fascinated in uh, normally. Basically, this is a, it's an annual get-together, the Congress, of um, all the uh, powers that be in, uh, in the FIE. Uh, but what happens this time around is that the uh, Executive Committee and the various other committees that, that run the sport at the international level are voted in, mm-hmm. um, and the Executive then... Um, appoints the, the various commissions. I think our reigning FIE president, Alistair Usmanov, uh, who's poured a great deal of his own money into the sport mm-hmm. uh, to develop it in a, a variety of different ways, yes. that I think is standing unopposed um, as, as president again. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see the, the, you know, the various people that are elected in uh, to work with him mm-hmm. on the executive and who the executive then appoints the commission. And a couple of interesting ones, people who are, are looking to be uh, appointed to, to commissions... Dave Baker. Yes, uh, our friend Dave Baker. Our friend Dave Baker, yeah. FIE referee, uh, lovely Australian chap, mm-hmm. uh, and most recently uh, sort of famous, if you like, for um, running a Facebook page um, about the qualification for the Rio Olympics, so various ways that fencers could qualify um, as individuals and teams yeah. and uh, updating spreadsheets because it doesn't, because the qualification process didn't exactly follow what the world rankings no, were. No, it doesn't, no. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a labour of love on Dave's part and had a huge following. Uh, I think it was up to about 20,000 views oh my God. Uh, some weeks towards the end of the qualification when people were trying to work out who was actually mm-hmm. going to Rio. So he's he's looking to get uh, get a place on the Promotion and Publicity Commission. He would get my vote. He'd get my vote too. I mean, it, don't want to make, make light of this, but Dave was king of the spreadsheets in the run-up to the, the Olympics, and it was, oh, he, it was a, an absolute bang-up job. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, really hard to understand how you how you qualify. <laughs> yeah, made it easy for the rest totally of spelled us. Out. Yeah, I mean, in terms of that sort of thing, he he is the uber nerd. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I was in when I was in Bonn, um, hoping to see the the British men's foilers qualify for the Olympics. Now, that particular day, uh, Britain lost to Germany, who were kind of their nearest rivals right, for, yeah. uh, for the last European place. And yep. there was still the possibility of China moving into top four, which would mean that Italy or France would drop out, which means that Britain then wouldn't qualify anyway. Oh, so it was all incredibly yeah. complicated. So basically what I did is I messaged Dave part of the way through the day and say, look, this is what I'm so far. What needs to happen for the rest of the day to ensure that Britain <laughs> qualify? And honestly, he was gone for about two minutes and then he was back and, well... Scenario X, you know, we don't Germany need to finish at least in the top two now, and uh, China probably need to win, and it depends what happens. Uh, you know, it came out with a whole load of potential scenarios. If this happens, then something else happens, and uh, it was just incredible. So, yeah. um, <laughs> thanks, Dave. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I would love to see him uh, uh, getting, a, getting a role in the FIE. Uh, and the other one is uh, uh, a familiar face if you follow men's foil or, or foil at all. Mm-hmm. Um, Xavier Lorenzo uh, from Spain, uh, really well known uh, referee, is looking to stand uh, for the for the Rules Commission. Uh, he's he's one of those referees whose his passion and enthusiasm for the sport really comes across well when he's refereeing. So okay. um, I, I would be very happy to see him uh, get an appointment on the Rules Commission as well. So that's about all our all our news update that I can think of for the moment. When we were going through our results last time round, something that became apparent was that uh, well if I asked you 
If I ask you 10 years ago, who are the, the superstar nations of fencing? Oh, 10 years ago, it would have been, you know, the, the usual suspects. It would have been, you know, obviously Russia and Germany and France and Italy. You know, these would have been the guys you would immediately spring to your mind. You might throw in some of the Eastern European, you know, nations. Yeah, Hungary. You know, Hungary, yeah. Poland, perhaps. Yeah, Poland, Poland yeah. yeah, these sorts of people. Yeah, but these days, when we're looking through the through results, a country that keeps cropping up is the USA. Yeah, go USA, Team USA. Yeah. yeah. Um, their best ever performance, I think, at the Olympics with, with four medals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it struck me that not that long ago, USA weren't really very good. Certainly when I when I was doing junior... Junior no. stuff, they were uh, they were they were rubbish. Really. Uh, they were they were as bad as us. <laughs> no. um, yeah, that's, that's how that's even even that when I, like even when I was fencing, that's how everybody would think about it. Was as, as you know, they were not any better than us. You know, there's loads more of them. They just weren't any good. <laughs> yeah. Know? So what I thought we needed to do is to find out what's changed. Um, so what I thought we need to find an American fencer or mm-hmm. coach who's who's been around, competed at a high level. And has seen firsthand, yeah. which and is still involved, and is still involved. Still involved. Yeah. yeah. So um, I got in touch with Dan Kellner, mm. prominent uh, American men's foil, uh, yep. foil coach, mm-hmm. uh, owns and runs Brooklyn Bridge Fencing Club, mm-hmm. and as of my want, um, I called him up on Skype to find out what had happened to American fencing, why it's become such a big success, and this is what he had to say. Hi, Dan. Uh, welcome to the Fencing Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, the reason we got in touch with you, um, as I said, Gavin and I have been looking through international results and um, it's hard to miss the fact that America is now uh, a major power in world fencing. Uh, but when I think back to, to when I was doing sort of junior World Cups, uh, at that time, American fencers were, well, they were really a bit like us Brits. Um, not terrible, but certainly in, in no danger of winning anything. And about the same time, you were just starting fencing, uh, thousands of miles away in New Jersey, I believe. Um, so what, yep. what did fencing in, in America look like at that time, that sort of late, late 80s? So I was born in 1976. So the late 80s, I started fencing when I was when I was 13. It was 1989. So it really was uh, the end of the 80s. Uh, and as I remember it, uh, we weren't great uh we were concentrating mostly on uh domestic results and going to junior world cups like when i was 13 i didn't even know that junior world championships cadet world championships the world championships existed i really had uh, no idea it wasn't until later a few years later in my career that those things came on my radar and i think what really what happened at the uh, end of the 80s into the early 90s was the fall of the Soviet Union. And I think that had a huge impact on American fencing uh, because before that we had a few people who defected, but after the the uh, Iron Curtain fell, after the fall of the Soviet Union, we had just an influx of uh, ex-Soviet coaches from all over the Eastern Bloc coming to the U.S., and show us what international fencing really was and how to train for it. Uh, Like I said, uh, I started fencing when I was 13, but my coach, Simon Gershon, came into the country in 1992. So I was 15 turning 16 before I started taking private lessons. And at that time, uh, Simon barely spoke any English. I had a translator on the side of the strip. It was either his wife or 
the or a man named Constantine Bardock, who uh, whose father owns blade fencing or owned right. blade fencing. Uh, and so I was the second lesson that my coach ever gave in this country, <laughs> and it was just completely different than anything I had learned at my high school at the time. And it, he just convinced us we had to take less. We had to take a lot of lessons and we had to come to practice almost every day. And he just instilled this professionalism in us because we had to compete with other countries, even though there was kind of the, the veil of amateurism. We all know now that it wasn't. So that's what we had to compete with, and that's what I think he and a lot of the other coaches who came from uh, the ex-Soviet Union instilled in American fencing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, big change, I mean, big shake-up in, in world fencing at that time. And as you say, coaches from, well, Soviet Union, Poland, Hungary, um, Ukraine has suddenly been distinct as rather than being part of the Soviet Union. Uh, obviously, a lot of them thought, great, yeah. free, freedom of movement now, and off to the United States of America to yeah. you know to make our fortune and you know and bring our bring our skills to a, to a new market. When when you reach sort of the towards the end of your your junior career, were you, were you competing in World Cups regularly? Uh, I really wasn't competing in junior World Cups regularly because, like I said, I only started taking lessons when I was fifteen, turning sixteen. I only had one year on the American cadet circuit after right. taking lessons, and we didn't. There wasn't really the established. Uh, European cadet circuit that people travel yeah. to already. So, and, and the funny story is, is we have uh, our junior Olympics, which is like the end of our junior cadet season. It's usually the last tournament that picks the, our junior cadet teams. And my last year as a cadet, one of my friends who was a fencer came up to me and said, "Dan, if you make the top four uh, in cadets, you'll make the cadet team." And my answer was, "What's the cadet team?" I <laughs> yeah. had no idea. <laughs> yeah, ignorance uh, is bliss. <laughs> That, that there was something to aspire to. Uh, but I quickly learned what it was. And I, I had I had the, it, both a misfortune and a great uh, opportunity because the, the people who were in front of me in juniors were Peter Devine, Cliff Bear, Sean McLean. They were the top American juniors at the time. And as you know, Cliff Bear became the first American man to ever be ranked in the top 16 uh, in the world in seniors. He was also the first American man to win a senior World Cup to also be to win a junior World Cup. Yeah. So I was always behind those guys in the, the junior team rankings just because I hadn't been fencing as long. And I went to maybe two, maybe three junior World Cups a year. I didn't make the American junior team until my last year as a junior, uh, which was 1996. But by that time, I I think I made the top 16 at Junior Worlds. I think I you did. Yeah. You, finished, you finished 14th, Dan. I, I went and checked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I mean, it was a while ago, but even but you can see even with I, – I hadn't been fencing that long, but with the influx of great coaches, all of a sudden the, the impact was being felt almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah, certainly that jump from uh, you know when I was competing as a junior in well, sort of eighty nine was my last season as a junior. As I say, the Americans were were okay at that point, but nothing special. Move forward seven years to, to your your last year as a junior. You make a top sixteen. I think Cliff Bear made the made the top eight that yeah, year. So yeah. you know, in a short space remember, of time, yeah, uh, you know, the jump. entire year. The uh, that, that that junior World Cup year, the junior worlds were won by Christian Schlettweg from Germany. And he went through the entire American team, I think. I think he beat Peter Devine in the 32. He beat me in the 16. And I think he beat Cliff in the 8. Right. 
And I think it, I remember Cliff being really disappointed that he didn't medal that year because yeah. he had won Junior World Cups, and uh, I remember being very, very disappointed. Yeah, it's uh, but it's a, it's a big jump in expectation from what it yeah. was, um, you know, just a short time before that. Um, yeah. At that time, in your final year as a junior, were you were you in college by that time or? Uh, yeah, by the time I made the junior world team, I, that was 1996, so I was a, a sophomore in college. It was my second year in university. Okay. Now you... And we, so, oh, sorry, we had always had a hint that Americans could do well because even though that the American men weren't doing well, the American women's foil team, mostly under the tutelage of Bucky Leach, was already having results far ahead of the men. Yeah. Uh, uh, Felicia Zimmerman had been a junior World Cup winner. Iris Zimmerman was cadet world champion, I think also junior world champion. So it wasn't out of the realm of possibilities. It was just the men hadn't even caught up to the, – the men had the U.S. men hadn't caught up to the women yet. Yeah. But since they were doing it, we had the idea that this is not impossible. Yeah, it's a it's sort of change of mindset, perhaps. That, uh, yeah. Yeah, it sort of open, opens your eyes to what, what can happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, college fencing in, uh, in America, certainly looking from the outside, seems um, huge. I mean, there's no, there's no equivalent in the UK, um, university fencing, um, yeah. much, much more social and, and not so much performance-driven. Um, how did you find college fencing? Was it um, a, you know, a positive experience for your fencing? Uh, it was positive in in the sense that I I went to Columbia University, which was in New York City. I'm originally from New Jersey, and I had been traveling to New York City from New Jersey uh, to train for those two years in high school before I went to university. And one of the reasons I went to Columbia was a it's a great school, it's and b it's got a great fencing tradition, and c it's in New York City. So I was lucky enough that the policy at the time was, and I think it still is today, that I could stay with my personal coach. I could fence for the university team, but stay with Simon Gershon and keep training. So it was just a confluence of a, a great situation. Yeah, best, best and, of everything. Yeah. And in the in the in university fencing in the U.S., you you have a lot of, you have a lot of fencing. There's a there's strong fencers, but. It's kind of spread out, so sometimes you'll get some strong. You'll meet strong fencers, and sometimes you won't. Usually, the NCAA's and the regionals are the strongest events. But unlike the rest of NCAA sports in America, like uh, football, basketball, where those are almost the minor leagues for the professional sports, NCAA fencing is much weaker in comparison. And usually, the the fencers that they want to do well for their university, but it's not the kind of end-all, be-all that, uh, that, co- that college athletics can be for uh, basketball, football, baseball, etc. Yes, yeah. yeah, so it's the whole world for them in, yeah. involved in those sports. But then it does lead on to you know, sort of professional leagues afterwards, I suppose, where yeah. fencing, fencing, I suppose, doesn't quite have the same, same setup in that regard. Right. Yeah. Um, but, and usually, and I guess... You can't play you can't play NCAA football and NFL football at the same time, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But you can do NCAA fencing and fencing on the world stage at the same time. So there's a there's a balance there that needs to be struck. And I think because of the success of our cadet and junior fencers and even the senior fencers that are in university and college, that the college coaches are very amenable to letting the kids travel. They, I know some universities help out with international expenses, and a lot of times, uh, some of our best coaches are also coaches at the universities, and 
uh, athletes choose to go to university because the university is great, but also because it has a great fencing program. Okay. Now, go to university in, in America is um, it's an expensive business. Um, are there are there a lot of fencing scholarships available for for the top fencers going into university? Uh, there, there's definitely a there's definitely a, a decent number of available, but uh, in working with uh, students and parents who whose kids are applying to university, there's now much more competition for those scholarships than there used to be. It's it's nothing like getting a Division One uh, baseball, or football, basketball scholarship, but fencing scholarships have become uh, more competitive in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. And uh, the, the Ivy League schools, Columbia, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they all have rich traditions and great fencing teams, but the Ivy Leagues don't offer sports scholarships. Okay. So there's a, there, there's a balance there to be struck. Right. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Now, once you once you left college, suddenly you're, you're out into the, the big bad world and having to um, support yourself and continue to, to train and compete. Um, these days in, in the UK, our, our top fences are, are funded by UK sport, basically government money. Um, nobody's getting rich on it, but it does allow them to train full time without the distractions of, of having a day job. Once you mm-hmm. once you left university, what, what was uh, your... Um, Work training life balance. So, so this was one of this. This was one of my biggest both uh, learning experiences and failure at the same time. And I think it made me not only a more professional athlete, but a better fencer, a better person. When I uh, got out of university, it was 1998, and I had already been on two senior world championship teams and had been going to college and balancing that thought it was fine and I got I needed to get a job I'm not I don't come from a ton of money uh, so I need to get a job and support myself and living in New York is not cheap but I made sure to get a job that when I would go in for interviews would be like listen I'm training for the Olympics for 2000 I'm doing this I'm going to need a certain amount of time off I'm going to need a certain amount of flexibility if you can't give me that please don't hire me and in return, obviously, I think I was paid a little less, but I was definitely willing to take less money for the flexibility. But the thing that I didn't know, and I don't think anybody was around to tell me, is like how much harder training for an Olympic year is than just training for a regular world championship year. And I thought because I'd been on the previous three world championship teams that training for the Olympics would just be more of the same and it was kind of just a natural progression a little a little arrogant of me I would say to think I could hold down a, a full-time job even a, even a flexible one and train um, so in and because in 19 in 1998 we were I think maybe the first time in modern history for the U.S. men's foil team we made the top eight at world championships uh, in Le Chaux de Fonds, and that was a, a, it was a big deal. Yeah. Um, and so we sort of assumed going into 1999 that we would be able to do the same thing. And back then, the men's team World Cup tournaments didn't count for standings. They were basically, I maybe you remember that, like, if there was a men's team World Cup, your, your team ranking was based on the individual results yeah. from the day before. <laughs> so because there were no team World Cup rankings, uh, at the 1999 World Championships, 
it was that our team ranking was decided from the day before his results, and it was just the top eight teams at the World Championships go to the Olympics the next year. And uh, the previous year we had uh, the previous year we had beaten the Ukraine. But Sergey Golubitsky wasn't fencing on the team, right. uh, and this year we drew go- we drew Ukraine again to make the top eight. This time he was, and uh, we did not make the top eight. Uh, and and like I said before, my because of the training and the working, my uh, World Cup results weren't great, so it didn't look like I was going to qualify through for the Olympics through the uh, the individual route. Yeah. Um. So I det- decided to take. I decided to quit fencing, and honestly, I didn't think I was gonna. Uh, I didn't think I was gonna fence again, to tell you the truth. Um, and it, I ended up taking a year break to the day that we fenced the team event at, at World Championships. Uh, and uh, to the day, I walked back into the club and told my my coach Simon, "I want to start fencing again." Uh, and this was the. It was 2001. It was the beginning of a new quad. And I made a decision this time that I'm going to train for the Olympics again, but I'm going to learn from the, mis- my, the mistakes of my past. And this time around, during this quad, when it came to about two years out of the Olympics, uh, I started an, a nonprofit uh, in the U.S. and I raised money for um, <clears throat> my teammates and myself so we didn't have to have jobs. Mm-hmm. And we could just train full time. Yeah, and so I think that, that the, the athlete initiative. Yeah, and yeah. that's and that really paid off, and that led to us coming in fourth uh, in by team in the 2004 Olympics, which at the time was the best results for a men's foil team in 56 years. Obviously, now we've got a bronze medal, so that's great. So they eclipsed uh, they eclipsed us uh, eight years later. Yeah. Uh, 12, sorry, 12 years later. Yeah. 12 years later, I can do math. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that's great. But one of the things that coming in fourth did for us, as well as Miles Agunas winning the gold medal uh, in the first Women's Sabre Olympics, is that it put us into uh, a new category of support from the U.S. Olympic Committee. Oh, okay. And after that, like you said, that now the athletes in Britain get uh, support from Sport UK. Once we got fourth in the Olympics, we started to get a monthly stipend of $2,500 a month from the U.S. Olympic Committee. Again, not going to make money off of it, but it's going to cover a lot of expenses that weren't covered before. And now, because especially the men's foil team is doing so well that they're – they get – uh, this past quad, because there was a team event, they got money uh, based on both team results and their world ranking. So the higher they are in the world, the more money they can earn per month. And I, I'd like to say that we kind of got them started on that road yeah, definitely. toward uh, toward making money at fencing or earning money at fencing. Yeah, no, it's, it makes a big difference, obviously. Um, I mean, say, talking about your own experience of trying to balance a full-time job with uh, trying to train for you know world world class competition, it's uh, yeah not far from possible, I would say. Um, yeah. So so eventually your your competitive career came to an end. But in, in, by injury, I believe what what was the injury that um, that, that finished you off? It, it was really it wasn't anything acute. It was more just kind of twenty years of wear, over twenty years of wear and tear. Um, I had 
it was after I was doing really well. I was finally ranked in the top 16 in the world uh, uh, achievement. I think I'm the only the second. I would at the time the second U.S. men's foil fencer ever be ranked in the top 16 in the world. I was finally like fencing up to my potential. Uh, but after a World Cup, I believe it was in China, I came back and I couldn't bend my elbow, like, or and I couldn't straighten my elbow anymore all the way. And, and I went to the doctor, and basically I had an injury that a lot of boxers get from snapping your elbow, extending your arm a lot. Uh, and I had uh, bone chips floating around in my elbow. I had my I had a big bone spur that was compressing my ulnar nerve, which is your funny bone nerve. Yeah. So the doctor had to clean out my elbow, and they actually detached my bicep and moved my ulnar nerve to the inside of my arm. So I, I can, like, elbow people on the outside of my – there's no funny bone nerve anymore. It's on the inside of my arm now. So – uh, that, that's, that's kind of what did it. Um, unfortunately, but, uh, I, I had a great career, so I can't, uh, I can't really be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a fun way to finish, but yeah. No, it, it doesn't sound like a fun way to finish, but I, you know, you wrestle with that, that, uh, that old adage, is it better to burn out or fade away? <laughs> And like it, like fine. I went out with an injury, but I went out at the top of my game. Nobody's going to remember me as this guy that kind of stuck around too long. Yeah, hanging around, making up the numbers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you're probably right. You're probably right. <laughs> um, so, so once you retired, um, the move into coaching. Now, um, you know, a lot of fencers will will retire from competing and mm-hmm. go, well, that's that's me done. I'll I'll finish with that. Um, others like yourself, me, loads of others think well you know I, I would like to like to stay involved and coaching is an obvious way to do it uh, so so what was your, your motivation for uh, moving into coaching when you first started so originally I thought I was going to be I thought I was going to be I thought I could be one of those people that like I'm done competing I'm done with the world of fencing it's time to grow up <laughs> and do something real get a real job uh, but my coach had always said that like fencing was my drug I was a addicted to it and I think he was right because I used to be one of those guys that uh, I would show up to the fencing club on my birthday and people were like Dan why are you here it's your birthday I was like yeah it's my birthday I get to do whatever I want even though I do it every day this is what I want to be doing especially on my birthday uh, so I spent basically uh, two years on my couch recovering from my surgery uh, and doing nothing uh, just doing like uh, like web development work, stuff like that. Uh, and I was still living in Manhattan. And then when I moved to Brooklyn, I found out there was a fencing club a few blocks away from me. Um, so I wandered in there. I started just fencing for fun a little bit. And then uh, one of the coaches there was leaving. So, excuse me, I asked the owner if he would like me to coach a little bit. And so I just started coaching a few days a week for fun, and I found that I loved it. And I was kind of like – I felt incomplete without being involved in the sport somehow. And I sort of felt a responsibility in the sense that at the time, I think I I had been one of the best foil fencers that this country had ever created. Obviously, I've been eclipsed now, but the other great fencers from this country had – just exited fencing and and not been involved and i really felt uh a responsibility to give something back and the in like you said the u.s had come so far 
in the 10 years that I was on the national team that it seemed uh, a waste to sort of stop, not stop the development, but a waste to not contribute to it. And I, we had, I'd always, always talked about with my teammates that we'd always have these great foreign coaches, but the, that model means you've always got to keep importing new people versus we really wanted to be a generation of Americans who are American coaches who could hold our own uh, with the rest of the world. So uh, it started off as a hobby, just doing it a few days a week. I found that I really, really liked it. Uh, I sort of butted heads with the owner of the fencing club I was working at because I had my own ideas and I, and I knew what worked up to the Olympic level. So there just came a time where I, I opened my own club I quit where I was working and I opened my own club, which was, uh, I, I think I started it in September of 2010. I think I opened uh, in October of 2010. I think the Facebook anniversary for six years at Brooklyn Bridge Fencing just passed right. a few weeks ago. So I've been open for just over six years uh, and I haven't looked back. And there are some days where I think I must be crazy for opening a fencing club. I'm sure you have those same thoughts. Yeah. But at the same time, there is nothing I would rather be doing. And I, I always joke with my friends when I see my friends who are coaches when I see them at tournaments is that the good or the bad, we chose this. And I think uh, as fencing coaches, it's, it's an honor, it's a privilege to be able to make your living at your passion because a lot of people – go to day jobs that they that they just try and get through to to, to do something else yeah. and i have to say that uh i love my job i love fencing and i wouldn't want to be doing anything else even with all even with all the downs there have been plenty of ups there are some downs but through it all I, there's nothing i'd rather be doing right now as you see clubs your club's brooklyn bridge um still still quite a young club but it's a it's a huge uh, step to open a open a club to take on your own facilities, um, organise the finances, generate members, um, uh, and yet it certainly seems uh, well. Again, looking from the outside, that the majority of clubs in in, in America have have their own facilities. They are run as a business. Um, uh, tell me what that, that's like, because that's not really the case with very many clubs in the UK. Yeah, I, so. Like you said before, like fencing coaches from all over the world came over here to like ply their trade and make their fortune. And we don't, unlike the, the I guess the UK, and I talked to people in Poland, Italy, uh, Denmark, and Sweden. Everybody there, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, gets uh, support either from like the city, the county, the state, the country, whatever. And you, the fencing is subsidized by the government. Uh, some way and it keeps fencing costs low for the members but at the same time you can't always make a a great living at it whereas in the u.s everything is capitalism and there's very little support uh if any from uh from anybody else and and it's our our usoc the u.s olympic committee is different i think from every other olympic committee in the world whereas uh every other olympic committee the, is part of the government uh, in your country. The Olympic Committee is not part of our government here. So they're responsible. For, they get money from the government, but they're responsible for raising the bulk of their own money. So there isn't as much 
money to go around to 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 trickle down all the way to the local club level. Yeah. It basically stops at the national governing bodies, uh, if if I'm if I'm correct. Um, so yeah, it's and especially in New York, people told me I was a little crazy because the real estate prices are yeah. are, are yeah. higher here than just about anywhere else. But uh, I. I talked about it with uh, my father and my wife, and I actually opened it during the recession in 2010. So uh, my father always said opening a business in a recession is a great time because the costs are low. So I got a really good deal on – they wanted to get rid of the space, so I got a really good deal on the square footage of the space. Um, And I started the club. uh, It was just me and 13 kids, and now six years later – uh, I have three other coaches and 130 kids, 130 members. So uh, I, I can't complain at all. <laughs> yeah. And... and managing it, it's just, I think, I think because I have just like, I think you tell just like a, such a passion for the sport that I think that just comes through on the business end. And I just want this, I want this to be a success financially so I can support my family and I want this to be a, uh, a success results wise so people know if they come here and train here the the proper way that they will become fencers and good fencers yeah I think um, I, I think I get the feeling looking at American clubs that um, they they are uh, very very results driven which it seems an obvious thing to see um, but certainly here in the UK, a lot of the clubs are really sort of more, more social things. You know, you go, you go there to learn a new sport and you, you improve a bit. And uh, but I, the training is not nearly as focused as I, I get the feeling um, it is at the clubs in in America. Would, would that be a yeah, fair comment? That the, uh, it's all about the results. <laughs> I think, oh, I, I can't speak for all of them, but yes, the, for the competitive ones, I definitely think there are still some social clubs out there. I remember about 20, 30, year ago, 30 years ago when I started fencing, there was definitely more of a social aspect to the club, even though it was results-driven. But now I think uh, with all the national, international results, it's a big – that's one – it's a, it's a big driver to get into college. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons it's so results driven. And we were talking about scholarships before and not just scholarships, but also recruitment slots for, say, the Ivy League schools or schools that don't give out athletic scholarships. It's become much more competitive there. And it's a it's a dirty little secret that uh, if you're being a good fencer is really a, a great ticket to going to an Ivy League school. Right. And um, I was talking with my friend uh, Giuseppe Perucci, who is a, a fencing coach in Italy and around my age, and he posted a great article, a great, sorry, a great post on Facebook that he was saying that, like, why he was looking around at the results, and it happened to be the same week that uh, Race and Bowden had won Paris, and also there was a, a cadet circuit as well, and all top eight finishers in the cadet circuit were American. Yeah. And he was looking around and he's saying that 20 years ago, this would be unbelievable. Why, why is this happening? And I think like one of the conclusions he came to, which was very smart is that it's, it's a really good investment to put the, to put the money you needed into for your kids fencing training now because you'll get it back in the back end because 
university in the U.S. is so expensive, you can actually save money in the long term <laughs> yeah. if you can get your kid into school and via fencing and their fencing helps them get in. And that going to competing for one of these college spots is a huge driver for American results because if you look at the if you look at the age of American fencing, and this is this is really kind of an interesting uh, difference between U.S. and um, and European fencing, the rest of the world is we. I think it's safe to say that we really dominate on the cadet level. Yeah, um, on the junior level, we're getting there. Like we we aren't we don't dominate the same way as we do on the cadet level, but I think the upward trend is toward that same sort of level yeah. of. Uh, of of excellence but once the kids reach 22 once they're done with university our fencing drops off a cliff yeah with compared to the number of junior and cadet results we have and that's because there's no system of support after university for americans whereas in Italy, you can be part of the Carbonieri and, and British, uh, you've got Sport UK where you can actually make a decent enough living to keep doing your sport. That's much, much harder in the U.S. So we have we have these great cadet and junior results and we've got great senior results, but much fewer. We've only got, there's a huge, there's a huge drop off after the top four seniors. Yeah, there's, I mean, the, huge, huge schools of... Uh, uh, outstanding uh, American cadets, uh, a slightly smaller group of juniors, and then once yeah. you get to the seniors, it's pretty much the team and most one or two others that are. Maybe, yeah, maybe. So, you, like, so where Europe has us there is that you're you can keep fencing after university. Now, the the question has become: Are those government jobs enough for people to stay in the sport? And the answer could be no because there's really a, a large fencing coach drain going on throughout, I would say, most of Europe because the coaches, Germany, Italy, they realize they can't make money anymore yeah. in their own in their own countries. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next 20 years and see what happens and whether Italy can – not sorry, not just Italy, but whether Europe can, can like – can reinvigorate its its senior results. Obviously, Russia's not having a tr- not having trouble because they've got <laughs> all that money. But yeah. if the rest of the Europe can keep up with the results, and whether the U.S. can find a way to support its senior athletes, more of them after after they're done with college. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a big problem. And certainly, it's one that's um, certainly as a coach. I've been uh, coaching for about eighteen years now, and um, with cadet junior fencers, see. As you say, loads and loads of outstanding American youngsters who then seem to disappear as soon as they as soon as they move out of juniors because yeah. suddenly they've you know they've got to they've got to support themselves and uh, that's yeah. that's hard going uh, without without having to make the sacrifice of giving up giving up fencing. It's difficult to do both. And if you look at um, our our Division One. Our Division One tournaments, which are our senior level, our Olympic qualifiers, our World Team qualifiers, there's maybe 250 fencers in them, but there's maybe maybe somewhere between 10 and 50, 10 and 15 percent are over junior age. Yeah. It's very, it's 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 a very compared to when I was fencing, it's a very very young field, uh, even in the the Division One, and even 
my club, I have very, very few fencers over uh, the age of 18. Right. Because most of them, unless I can convince them to stay in New York to go to college, mm. one of the reasons they're here is to get all the results they can, which is fine. I completely understand. And then one of my jobs is to make them as good a fencer as they can be so they can get into the college of their choice. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of um, set of mo- motivations for um, uh, for fencing beyond beyond high school age uh, yeah. it, in America. Yeah, that's that, that's really interesting. Now, um, obviously, America now a world power at fencing. You've you've highlighted a number of sort of challenges that the the sport faces um, in in continuing to, to develop and and grow at a senior level. Um, what do you think the future looks like for uh, for American fencing at, at, at senior level? Are, are we likely to be uh, stuck in the sort of situation that you described where really only the very top fencers will be able to continue to, to compete and support themselves at a world level? Or are you hope that eventually America will be able to develop that um, depth at senior level that, say, countries like France or Italy uh, or Russia I, have? I definitely hope that the U.S. can develop that depth uh, that the other countries do because it, it would be a waste. I think we are in uh, a golden age, especially for U.S. men's foil fencing. Um, that's kind of been unprecedented, definitely unprecedented uh, in the history of our uh, country's uh, weapon. So I would love to see that continue. I would love for there be a way to figure out to just keep supporting these athletes and keep supporting uh, the next generation and keep it going as, as long as possible because it would be it really is a waste that some of our talented athletes and hardworking fencers have to quit because they can't uh, support themselves uh, after university after college yeah I certainly hope so too I mean it's, it's been uh, uh, fascinating watching the, the changes in American fencing and the, the time yeah. that I've been aware of it and uh, uh, there have been some amazing highlights in that time. Um, Dan, it's been a, an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's been really fascinating to uh, to get your insight into what it's what it's been like in American fencing over the over the last two and a bit decades. And um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to, to speak to me today. And uh, wish you absolutely every success with your club and the fencers. And um, I really uh, can't thank you enough. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I had a great time and let's do this again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Thanks very much, Dan. You're welcome. Well, uh, congratulations on another good interview. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that. Thanks very much. I mean, again, it was one of those interviews where I hardly said anything at all. I asked a question and got yeah. a thoroughly fascinating and informative answer. I, I, I really, really enjoyed interviewing Dan. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it was good. It was very, very good. Very yeah. interesting hearing his perspective because you know some of the names that he was sort of tossing out that were around when he was kind of looking up to and approaching mm-hmm. you know like Cliff, Cliff Bear and people like that I sort of dimly remember them from you know days gone by and it was just interesting seeing his perspective on how the, the sport sort of grew, has grown over that period of time and his, his kind of career in fencing and how it's how it changed very quickly for, for yeah, America yeah exactly I mean, yeah. He, his his career uh, as a person starting fencing, world class junior, mm-hmm. top six in the senior worlds, Olympian, yep. coach of a successful club, producing world champions, senior world number ones, covers a, a huge, a huge range, oh, yeah. uh, and, a, and a whole load of changes. I mean, I honestly, I could have spoken to him for 
um, twice as long as I did. Yeah, uh, I well, it, I it we should try and get back on. I think because uh, there's obviously other stuff to talk about there. But but was it? But the interesting thing about people like this is they are uh, transitional people. So they're there in the old guard and the old way, and then they're there in the new guard and the new way as well. Because obviously he was talking about the the way that it was, which is very much the way that we are. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah pretty much. Know, so. Yeah, I mean, I, as I as I said when I was speaking to him, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, back when I was a junior, America was pretty much like us. Yep. Um, and now they're not. Yep. Um, we, you know, we talked about the huge number of uh, cadet fencers that are extremely good. Mm-hmm. You know, they they win stuff all over the place and they travel in big numbers to the European cadet yep. circuit events. You know, and there's no kind of FIE mm-hmm. uh, global global uh, circuit for cadets. Um, and, well, to take an example, um, a young fencer that, that you and I both coach, uh, young Dylan Morrison, mm-hmm. That's uh, right. made his made his debut uh, for the GB Epi Squad in uh, European Cadet Circuit event in Klagenfurt yep. in Austria um, just the other week. And uh, while that was a you know a proud moment for us, yep. um, the the other interesting thing to come out the weekend, apart from our narrow bit of self interest, was that uh, huge event, two hundred forty odd fencers, big squad of American kids there. Uh, in the men's event, there's two, the first first two places in the individual, which is impressive enough in itself. Um, but in the team event, where you can each country can put in multiple teams, uh, there was, so there was 40 odd teams in the team event, four American teams, and they finished first, second, third, and fourth. I, I mean, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. I mean, just incredible depth. Yeah. Um, so if you look at American fencing, you might say, oh, well, the strength is in uh, foil and saber at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's fair to say that if you're if you wait for the epi success, it, it's definitely in the post. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're like if you talk about cadets, when's that going to be? What the next five to ten years? One yeah. of them's going to step up to the mark, probably, and yeah, be the almost, next big thing for them. Almost certainly. So anyway, um, that pretty much draws part one to a close. Um, in part two, um, we're going to have a look at some more coach moves. Yep. And then we're going to get into some actual fencing results. Yes. Uh, we'll have a look at the, a quick roundup of the, the Junior World Cup results that have mm-hmm. been happening since we, we last broadcast and uh, looking at the early season results for the seniors as well. Yeah. Some interesting stuff, I think. Yeah. So join us in part two. <laughs>